You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. So, thank you. This is another edition of Bicycle Retail Radio, and I'm uh, Scott Chapin. I run the Marsh and McLennan Insurance Agency's Bicycle Industry Insurance Programs, and today I'm going to be speaking with Kimo Seymour from Lifetime Fitness, and there's some uh, obviously some potential interesting relationships between the event side and, and bicycle retailers, and we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about what Kimo does in his role and a little history of the event growth within their company. So first off, Kimo, if you could, why don't you tell me a little bit about your position as president of media and events division of uh, Lifetime Fitness, give you a little uh, history of how you ended up there, and, and we'll go from there. Hi, hey, Scott. Okay, thank you very much. I, um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I lead the uh, events and media business for Lifetime. Lifetime, as most of you may know, is a pretty well-known national health and wellness company, primarily known for our, you know, our fitness and health facilities across the country. We've got about 145 of those facilities now, growing at about a rate of about 10 clubs a year. So large footprint in the health and wellness space. Touch about two million members a year through our through our clubs but outside the walls of our clubs we uh, we operate 30, about 30 uh, athletic events uh, triathlons running events cycling events i came to lifetime about eight years ago it, through an acquisition actually i had a small event company based out of arizona and um, sold it to lifetime and came to came on to help uh, in the beginning to help going to start the uh, what we now call the Leadville Race Series and primarily Leadville and all the events were there, obviously, but the uh, I was asked to come on and help expand the qualifier series for uh, for the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race. So been with Lifetime about eight years now. Uh, prior to Lifetime, I was I was in the business for about four years in the events business. But prior to that, I spent about 15 years of my career in, in real estate development in Arizona. So made the transition in the late 2000s, uh, luckily before the crash <laughs> in uh, 2008, I started uh, transitioning over to the events world. And, and here I am, you know, 10, 11 years later. Awesome. And how many, so you had mentioned there's 145 facilities. How many, how many events does your division put on and what sort of the geographic scope of those? So we, you know, our events, uh, about, about, 30, 31 events a year right now on our calendar. The, you know, geographically, uh, if you if you plotted them all on a map, they ironically they line up fairly uh, closely to the markets where we have a either have or plan to have a big investment on the club side of our business. So, you know, we 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 certainly like and enjoy having events in markets where we do have clubs. We see higher participation of our of our members coming out to to participate in our events in those markets. So. Uh, some of those big geographic markets, obviously Minneapolis, uh, which is our home home base, the corporate level, and we have 20 plus clubs in that market. We have an office in an events office in New York, one in Miami, uh, one here in Leadville, Colorado. With the acquisition of Dirty Kansas this last year, we added obviously the team there has come on board and are helping us not only with the Dirty Kansas events, but some of our other events around the country. Uh, and then we also have a, a team in Chicago that puts on some of those events. So our events offices and, and event locations, you know, they tie generally tie pretty nicely to, uh, you know, to being in good proximity to our club locations around the country. 
Perfect. So you answered my next question. <laughs> and that was the why. And so there's obviously a synergy between where the, your facilities and, and the events. So, you know, one thing I was, I was interested, so in a nutshell, it looks like you're doing uh, mountain bike races, running races, triathlon, gravel. I, am I missing anything? Or is that pretty much sort of all the different types of events that Lifetime owns? That's primarily uh, what our athletic events portfolio looks like. Correct. And uh, to answer your, to answer your, uh, a second layer, I guess, to answering your question about the why, you know, you might, you know, why ask, or you might ask why Lifetime is in in the events business. You know, it's it's obviously a small, small piece of our overall what we call the healthy way of life company. But what we like, you know, we we love the opportunity or we enjoy the opportunity of of creating just great experiences for people. So I like to say, and I've, I've said multiple times in the past, we kind of like to extend that healthy way of life beyond the walls of those clubs around the country. So we're, you know, what we see is it helps people create a healthy lifestyle versus just a a point in time commitment to doing, you know, losing weight or, you know, eating better or whatever it is. This is more, uh, you know, we, we create more aspirational opportunities for people to to live a healthy way of life, to set a goal, and then to to go out and show up. And then, you know, our job on the event side is just to create really, really great experiences that ultimately we hope a participant, customer of ours, will not only think our the experiences we create are, you know, our industry leading and and top notch experiences, but we hope that they'll, you know, somehow someday associate that with the lifetime brand. And, and realize that the, the value Lifetime can bring to these events and the experiences we can create. Awesome. I'm kind of curious uh, with the, the, the local markets, the markets that are most, you know, just say within 100 miles of your 31 events, do you, do you get, what kind of feedback do you get from the retailers, whether they're a sponsor or not of, of the event and how that potentially creates interest for their customers to, you know, create a goal to maybe do the Dirty Kanza or Schwamigan Fat Tire Festival or Ludson 99 or I, I, I'm real, real curious um, what you hear just in a, in a, not necessarily specifically, but just in general with, with the retailers that you, that you do, I'm sure you have uh, close communication with. Yeah, it's a really good question, Scott. I think, you know, what, what we hear, and, and some of this will be anecdotal, but, but we, what we hear in general uh, is that our events can kind of influence what's happening in those communities. So, you know, we, the events, I think, have a social influence and, in, in, you know, people training and, and coming together. And a lot of times in, in the case of cycling events, you know, coming together around those retailers because there's, a, again, that social opportunity to gather and to, to train together and to set goals and to go out and prepare for events like this. So, you know, we do see that around the country and in various markets where, you know, those retail partners end up being kind of the social or the gathering place for people to to come together and, and again, train for um, and set goals to, to accomplish these events. Good. And I'm, I'm just wondering, have most of the events that you own, were they via acquisition or have there been quite a few of them that you've started from scratch? I'm, I'm just wondering if it was what type of growth, it was organic or, or through acquisition. 
You know, primarily the build the business started with our with Lifetime starting a few events in Minneapolis close to 20 years ago. I think we started with uh, a few you know family focused events that were really kind of club centric, around just getting getting club members out outside to participate. You know, reindeer runs, turkey day runs, things like that that were really you know quite family oriented. Yep. Uh, then we started expanding into the triathlon space, and we started adding events ourselves. Uh, over time, we found it was a little it was easier to go out and acquire events than it is to to have the patience to you know greenfield a new event and then you know and let it grow over the years. Uh, we went into a pretty aggressive acquisition mode for for a few years, and that's about the time that I came to Lifetime. So we did I, th- I think somewhere close to a dozen acquisitions got us up to around. 80, between 80 and 90 events at one point. But many of those acquisitions, you know, there was, you know, when we would acquire something, there'd be one or two events that we were kind of keenly focused on. And then that event producer might also produce eight or 10 other smaller local or regional events that eventually we either divested or, or shut down to get to the to where we are today at, at roughly 30 events. So um, out of the 30 events that we've got today, just a small handful are events that we started. Uh, most of them are, are acquisitions and in, in that where we've brought in not only event the event, but in many cases, the team associated with the event. Right. Interesting. What is, do you know, approximately, I'm not going to hold you to it, the average amount of participants for the, the 31 events? You, you know, the average, let, let's see, we, I think this year we'll have somewhere between 120 and 130,000 participants. So, you know, somewhere between three and 4,000 participants on average, but that gets skewed by events like uh, the Miami Marathon, which is close to 25,000 participants. Right. Um, and our, our off-road events, as you're probably familiar, Scott, you know, off-road events tend to be smaller. Uh, right. Cycling events, certainly smaller than running events. Um, and when you get into off-road running, those are even smaller, obviously, just constrained, uh, you know, constrained courses and whatnot. So somewhere between three and 4,000 people average per event across our whole portfolio. But again, many of them are smaller than that. Perfect. So it, with the various types of events that that you own, obviously tracking participation, what types of events are growing at, at the greatest percentage and then which ones are maybe struggling? So nothing against how the specific events are doing, but it's probably a good indicator if, you know, if you're seeing gravel increasing and running decreasing. I, I, I'm curious just what information you can provide based off of the, the owned events. So, you know, we, we've got a few data points I could share with you. Another another piece of our business I didn't describe earlier is is the Athlinks business. And if oh, yeah, that's right. Those are familiar with Athlinks. It's a, a, we think the world's largest database of participant finisher data. And so we track a lot of that and we get to, you know, we get the benefits of seeing where some of the trends are going in the industry based on the data that we see there. Now, it's a, it can be a little bit skewed when it comes to some of the off-road events traditionally, you know, are still not even timed. You know, we only track events that are timed and produce results. So for the events that don't have results, we can't really see what they're doing. Um, we don't have access to it's necessarily all registration numbers. So, but gener- in general, I can tell you, and this is a, at a real high level, the, it's no surprise that you know road cycling and triathlon are in a fairly uh, fairly steep decline from what we can see. We have not uh, we have not been in the road cycling event business. Uh, we tested a few concepts a few years ago, but really struggled to get participants out on in, into road cycling events. Triathlon is an area that we were we have been heavily invested. We have 
you know, the second largest tri-series in the U.S. behind Ironman uh, with our lifetime tri-series. And, you know, we've, it's been challenging. Um, triathlon has been in a pretty steep decline, as I mentioned. And, and so we're seeing less and less participation there. Last year was actually about, or this year, I'm sorry, 2019 was about flat participation-wise across our, our, our tri-series but we struggled to really grow participation in triathlon. So I like to say, and I joke, the only thing that's growing is events that that take place on dirt. So whether it's gravel cycling, mountain biking, or ultra and trail running, if you put those in the same category, uh, that's where we're seeing a lot of the growth, both on the athletes, you know, the statistics we have on athletes, but also uh, in our own events, the demand is, is really, really, you know, increased for, for our dirt events. So some of the events like you're familiar with Schwamigan and Lutzen, Dirty Kanza and our Leadville series of events, all really, really phenomenal growth this year. So that obviously ties into, if you just look at the NPD statistics, you know, obviously road and try equipment is down, anything on dirt is up. So I'm, I'm wondering, road I have obviously, I think there's no secret that Part of the reason road bike sales are down is just the potential for vehicular contact. Hence, if people are less doing less road races, you know, there are less road riding, they're probably less apt to do a race. So what do you think the variable is and, you know, why, why are triathlons declining? I've, I've read some articles about people's opinion, but I'm, I'm sure I'm curious about yours. You know, my mine would be my mine would be purely anecdotal. You know, I think I have an opinion like anybody else, and um, I think the complexity of triathlon, having to train for for three sports versus one or two, is is challenging. You know, we've done a lot of lot of research uh, through our participant base, and our our events, triathlon events, are you know, sprint and Olympic distance. So we get more of kind of the I would call it the entry level triathlete at our our events, and in a lot of surveys, and I'm talking to a lot of athletes. You know, it's the you know the, the barriers to entry are are much higher when you have to dive in and, and into three sport basically three sports and three disciplines. And so right. we're, you know we're we're just not seeing the growth in triathlon as as really a lifestyle event. Uh, in many cases, I think triathlons are are more of a bucket list type of event. And yep. and from our perspective, we're seeing that people are are choosing things again off road that are really, I think, becoming much more lifestyle. Um, and, yep. and as you mentioned with road racing, you know, the again, purely anecdotal, but just about anybody you probably talk to is that rides on the road is, you know, is scared that every time they go out on the road that someone driving by, you know, on their phone texting and not paying attention, is, you know, that they're going to be the next one to get hit. And and so I I. Yeah, I agree with you. People seem to be moving off the pavement onto dirt, whether they're whether it's for participating in events or just for, again, just lifestyle. Yeah, lifestyle adventure or just uh, yeah, just getting a change of scenery. I mean, I, yep. and obviously, you know where I live in northern Wisconsin and the whole gravel scene and the off road scene is it's always been kind of dominant here. And, and, uh, and it's most of the people that I know that that ride on the dirt are are doing it just for for either exhilaration or just for what you see when you're riding the the adventure part of it. It's really interesting having conversations with a lot. So I'm in my upper 40s, almost 50 years old, and my now I have a lot of friends who have kids who are young adults. And what I tend to see, and I'm curious what your data shows, is 
there are an you know an awful lot of kids in their you know millennials that are really really into riding, meaning they ride their bike a lot, but it doesn't seem they're like they're interested in being timed. You know, and again, this is a total general comment because I know there are a lot that do, but do you, do you feel, what are the age, you know, when you look at all the participation of the, of the bicycle events, is it really skewed to a certain age group that is, that might be, you know, older than 30 or older than 40 or tell me a little bit about those demographics and, and maybe I'm way off base, but. Well, you know, my our data for our events may be skewed a little bit more than than other events because we're talking events like you know about events like Schwamigan and Leadville, the Leadville Trail 100 Mountain Bike Race, and Dirty Kanza um, that are not necessarily um, accessible to to youth, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, our, you know, our data is certainly skewed to the you know I I, I would. This is a broad range, but I'll call it kind of the 30 to 60 demographic, if you will, and probably trending to the higher end of that. Um, okay. Some of it can be, you know, price point related as well. Um, I think, you know, that you're obviously you're quite familiar with some of the successes of NICA and and the the growth that NICA is, is seeing across the country. And and some of the things, as you probably know, NICA's having these conversations about there there is a uh, there, there's a renewed interest in cycling, obviously, and mountain bike you know, racing at the high school level, especially, and that the the interest is also, you know, for the, in the non-competitive arena. So just participatory, you know, and and coming out and doing events that are more participation focused than they are competitive focused. So it's it's refreshing to see that growth coming up through NICA and, and around the country, more kids getting on bikes, but at our events, we're still seeing, you know, heavily, heavily skewed to the, you know, a middle aged demographic. Got it. Yeah. And oh, by the way, uh, Kim was going to uh, be helping NICA as a board member here in the in the very near future. So that's that's exciting. And thank you. Um, as many of you know, I'm I am on the on the NICA board myself. Um, interesting. So, yeah, there's so many. OK, so I'm going to kind of just jump around because there there's some of these some of the events I'm very familiar with, like Shawamigan, uh Fat Tire Festival, which is in northwestern Wisconsin. And I know the the participation of that has been, you know, in the roughly the 3000 participant uh, range for for many years and probably 15 years ago had a higher demand. And so I am just wondering if part of the reason with some of these events that that have maybe are a little less popular is is based off of. Is it, you know, an aging population or is it based off of, you know, individuals being more interested in a single track race or a gravel race? I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are with with a race like Shawamigan. And for those who are not familiar with that event, it's it's uh, it's largely on gravel and then the American Brookerbiner ski trail. So it's like a really fast, non-technical race and it's 40 miles like what are your what are your thoughts on how bicycle technology for example and and or the uh, you know the growth of single track in so many communities has has had on an uh, affected uh, a race like Schwamigan? Oh, another great question. Um, I, you know I think Schwamigan, we it, it, you probably noticed if you were up there this year, it was down a little bit from last year. Um, you know we we attribute it to a couple different things. I think there's 
you know, in in the you know Wisconsin Minnesota market, there has been you know a proliferation of of new events. Obviously, um, I think the you know the single track type of events, um, they, I think they cater to a different type of mountain biker, as you mentioned. Right. And you probably see a. I mean, I'm sure you saw a handful of gravel bikes even out at Schwamigan. You could easily yeah, ride yep. up gravel bike at Schwamigan and similar, you know, Leadville, you, you know, guys are riding gravel bikes now. It's, it's not a, it's not necessarily a technical mountain bikers type event. Right. Um, so I think we saw a little bit less demand this year for Schwamigan. Uh, some of that, I think, you know, we attribute to some of it is, is Gary, you know, you, you know, Gary made the decision to retire last year and he's kind of driven that event for about 35, 36 years. Um, still helps out. I think, I think he was out there helping park cars this year, from what I heard. But, he was, <laughs> uh, but Peter Spencer, who has been really successful uh, with with Lutzen, is now stepping in, and yeah, we think he's, he's gonna, good. you know, he, we think he's gonna have a really, really positive impact. He made some good changes with the event this year, but certainly, you know, there there it could be that people are are choosing to to go and ride single track. I, I think I think the expansion and explosion of gravel events. Uh, again, a lot, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of them aren't timed. In some cases, some you don't even pay for some of them. Um, it's really doing great things to get people right. on bikes. And if it pulls a few people away from Schwamigan, you know, that's something we'll have to we'll have to deal with. But in the end, you know, we're big believers that the more people riding bikes, the better. So, you know, if if uh, if it means that we see higher participation, higher demand for some of our our other gravel events, that that's okay too. You know, that that may be the the general direction the industry is going right now. Right, and I think Peter's doing a great job. By the way, he's he's a he's a great guy. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and then I'm just I'm also curious on on the on the gravel side on some of these large. So you have Lutzen, Dirty Kanza. What other gravel gravel events? Um, does Lifetime own? Are those the two the two biggest ones? You know, Lutzen is still. I mean, we call it a mountain bike race. Uh, another yeah. one again. It, it appeals to to someone who maybe isn't interested and in, as interested. The trails are obviously similar. Right. To yeah. That. There's there's a fair amount of double track that I right. guess. Fair amount of double track and some gravel road. Um, it's got a nice variety to it. Very very little single track. So it, it's certainly a mountain bike race. Dirty Kansas is our only gravel event right now. A um, yep. little teaser for you. We'll be announcing uh, two two new events uh, next week. Uh, we've got a, an event and holding a press event at, uh, in, in conjunction with Outer Bike down in Bentonville next week. So we will have two more gravel events on our calendar for 2020. And that's where, you know, right now, that's where we're highly focused on expanding, you know, expanding our footprint. Well, you answered my next question is, is if you, which was going to be if you were looking to do some acquisitions, would it be, you know, in the gravel arena being that it is such a such a hot market? It's certainly, the, you know, that it, it's certainly growing. Um, it's a you know, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's a small market, but growing at a, you know, exponential type of rate. Um, you know, we're still interested in, again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we want to provide opportunities to create great experiences for people. And and so that doesn't, it's not necessarily uh, limited to just expanding in the gravel space. We're interested, you know, we've got a really healthy run portfolio um, yeah. and, and our, our run events are, have actually done really well the last couple of years, I think, kind of despite some of the industry trends and in road running, uh, our events have done really well, again, because we're so experiential focused. Yeah. Um, so we, we've we've definitely got an interest in continuing to expand on the running side uh, and the mountain biking and, and uh, gravel areas. So there's a, there's a question that I get asked a lot, which is how do you keep the 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 young athlete after they graduate from high school 
whether they're going into college or not, I guess is, is not, not necessarily relevant, but how do you keep them engaged in, you know, in bicycling or running or any of the sports or are, is lifetime doing anything to sort of address that, that age gap between, cause it just sure seems like from the time a lot of athletes graduate from high school and age 30, there's, I think there's a big drop off for a variety of reasons, but what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, boy, another really good question. I'll tell you, Scott, this is part of part of the reason I'm interested in the opportunity to to uh, get involved with NICA. Uh, I, I think what NICA is doing is just amazing, getting um, getting kids on mountain bikes. I think the the question that we all have to answer is how do we keep them on bikes? And and I'm hoping that we can play a role in that. I can tell you out of with all of our mountain bike and let's throw in Dirty Kanza or gravel event with all of our, our bike biking events. We outside of the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race, uh, all of our events have uh, shorter distances or opportunities for what I would call a more family, uh, either kid or family focused type distances of events. So at Lutzen, as you know, multiple distances at that race right. plus a yeah, kid's race that we do on miles. Sunday. Yep. Right, right. We've got the short and fat at Schwamigan. We've got Dirty Kansas team had added a high school race this past year. Yep. Um, we've got Leadville at the Silver Rush event. We added a kids, you know, duathlon and a separate kids shorter distance mountain bike race this year. So we're doing lots of things to really kind of open up the events to to draw in more family and, and kid participation uh, in the hopes that we can keep people engaged uh, and especially, you know, youth as they come out of high school and into their, you know, into their early 20s. We'll call them those gap years, you know, between high school and maybe age 26, 27, when they might come back to riding a bike. We'd like to we'd like to help keep them engaged. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder, again, a lot of my friends have kids that are now in their early 20s and and a lot of them, I think. I, I hear this a lot is they're, you know, they don't have a lot of money. Maybe they're just starting a job. They've got debt. You ever, I wonder if the, one of the, one of the solutions to keeping them involved is just having people in that particular age group have a different, you know, a different fee structure. I, I, I it's, it's kind of, I'm kind of going way out, way off base with this, but have, have you ever thought about anything like that and whether that could be effective? I, and I, you know, I realize that there's fixed costs with putting an event on, but, just, just curious about that. It's, it's funny you asked. We have actually, we've had discussions about um, it potentially even making our kids races free or lowering it to a point where it basically just covers our hard, hard cost per athlete. And, and um, so, yes, we have had those discussions. We haven't pulled that trigger yet, uh, but it's something we're considering for 2020. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's tough to tell how much of kids transitioning out off of riding bikes is related to the cost or the expense of riding you know, right. either the bike itself or or event participation. So it, it's it's tough to know that you know will, will free drive more demand or do we need to have the demand there and then you know offering free or reduced rates will just encourage more participation. That's something we're exploring. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I was throw, just sort of throwing straws, but just I've I've heard that comment enough where. You know, maybe it's maybe they're on the bubble and they'd like to, but then it's like, oh well, it's eighty bucks, and I I don't have a lot of extra money, so it just it's an really kind of an interesting to think about. And but yeah, you really don't know, I guess, until you try it or do some additional research. So do you on a lot of the events? Do you is there a for all the bike events? I presume you have bicycle retailers and, and manufacturers as sponsors. Is that is that safe to say um, across the board? 
Correct. Right. We, we, we typically work with obviously some of the bigger brands to, are, you know, typically sponsoring, uh, want to be associated with the events and, and, you know, involved in our expos at some of the bigger events. Uh, but then, you know, the, the people, the lifeblood of, of these events often does live in that, that local retailer, you know, that retailer that's really closely tied into the market. Um, so we work, you know, very closely with, with retailers across the country as well. And oftentimes, have those retailers, have you gotten some good data as far as, you know, tracking the, the return on that, that sponsorship or, or partnership investment? You know, I, I don't. I don't get, you know, I, I don't get specific from a, from a bicycle re- retailer what kind of results they get directly. I don't know how much, how well they can attribute it uh, necessarily to an event. Um, I think what we do see across the country is, is in those markets, obviously, where those events are occurring, it, it seems as though the retailers are, their product lines kind of mirror the format of the events, if you will. Yeah. So as an example, you know, in, you know, at Dirty Kanza, uh, Gravel City is, yep. you know, 99% gravel bites. Um, right. That's what they're seeing in that market. And so, you know, I think it, it's interesting to see how, you know, either the events and or um, what I'll call, you know, social communities around those events kind of end up dictating and, and driving uh, what the, you know, what the retailers are doing and where the, where the retailers are succeeding. Um, it, and, and then, you know, the, it's those, you know, the most successful ones are where they do build a really great social community around riding. Uh, and again, often, and, you know, formats of, you know, Leadville is an example, you know, Cloud City Wheelers, the, the, the yep. local club up there, along with, um, with, with the local bike shop, obviously, you know, heavily, heavily skews towards mountain biking. Right. And same thing with Dirty Kanza and Gravel. Yeah. It's, and that, that's where it gets to be really interesting is like, well, you know, it'd be interesting to see sort of how something would morph. So let's say you have a brand new event, the one perhaps in Arkansas gravel event, and to see what the retailers in the area are currently selling from a product mix. Fast forward five years after the event grows, you know, grows to X amount of people. And then compare that, you know, what percentage are gravel bikes compared to their overall bikes from the beginning to five years to 10 years. I can't help but think that you're, you're right on that. It's, it's going to really have an influence on both the type of product being sold within the bicycle retail shop and obviously the quantity of, of, of bikes. So yeah, it's, (laughs) those are some, some things that, that would really be interesting to me at least. So. Yeah, I, I think it that, that that's a great point, Scott. I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens in a market like Bentonville, um, where, as we all know, the Walton family, well, maybe many of your listeners might know, the Walton Family Foundation has invested millions of dollars in that market, creating somewhere close to 200 miles of single track trails in and around Benton, Benton County in northwest Arkansas. And But what we're hearing and seeing is a big growth in gravel cycling in general in that market as well. So beyond the fact that it's become a destination mountain biking type of you know destination, it's it's also quickly becoming a gravel riding destination. So in kind of all things cycling, right. if you will. So it'll be interesting to see. We'll be down there next week and be interesting to see what we have coming and other event producers have coming will have some impact on on retail and, and what product mix that the retailers are seeing demand yeah, exactly. for. Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I've been to Bentonville. Uh, we had our NICA conference down there two years ago, and that was my first visit. And to me, it was all about mountain biking. And I, I hadn't heard, I don't think I'd heard a single thing about the gravel scene. And now it's there, it just hasn't been promoted. And oftentimes, in some of the presentations I've done throughout the U.S., if there's a, a new trail organization, for example, the best way to get people to visit your trail is to put an event on, and that gets them there for the first time, gets the interest in the community, in the area, and that's sort of the recipe for success. So it, it will be very interesting to follow that side of things. I think one one more question. We're almost we're almost out of time here, but does I, I presume that within the clubs you have training programs that are very specific to a event that might be in the region? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Actually, yes, we do. Uh, so you may be familiar with um, Lifetime Cycle Club, which mm-hmm. is basically a, a free club that we offer uh, in about 50 of our clubs around the country. I don't know what the number is right now, but somewhere around 50 clubs uh, have cycle clubs and, and put on rides uh, on a weekly basis, in many cases, multiple times a week and uh, obviously seasonal. Um, but but we have somewhere around 30,000 lifetime cycle club members around the country. So it's a oh, pretty... Wow a pretty big audience. And we do, uh, we are seeing more actually more and more of those clubs offering up mountain biking and gravel um, mm-hmm. courses and, and workouts with their, with their club members. And oftentimes uh, it is, you know, in markets close to uh, where those events are, you know, some of the events that we're producing are other really, you know, really strong events in the country. So we do see that, you know, what, what events are happening and the, the format for the events, we do see that influencing our cycle club and the demand for different styles and types of rides for those clubs. Wow, that's a that's 30,000. So I, I, I presume that a lot of those individuals that maybe were reluctant to sign up for an event, that that club is giving them sort of the, the support and confidence and sort of the training tools to be able to do the event? Is, is that one of the sort of end goals? That's that's one of the goals, absolutely, and customizing some of the the formats for those group rides to to help you know empower people and to and to educate them about the you know the types of events that we're producing and and other events that might be happening in those markets. If you if you think about it, our footprint on the event side, you know, we we've just talked about the handful of of mountain biking and gravel events that we have around the country. It's really small if you think about you know the magnitude of gravel and mountain biking across the country. So we're certainly in a lot of markets. Markets, you know, ho- hopefully helping people achieve, you know, the, again their, you know, their their aspirational goals, whether it's our event or so, or somebody else's. Um, again, our our goal with Cycle Club, and it, it starts with our from our CEO Barama Kradi on down. The goal is just empower and enable people to get out and and ride together and get people on bikes. And we've had some pretty good success with that. You know, it, it kind of starts with, um, I got to speak a couple years ago uh, at, at, a, at a conference in Monterey, uh, just before Sea Otter uh, Bicycle Industry Leadership Conference and talked oh, yeah. a lot about how we have started athletes or cyclists on, you know, in spin classes in our clubs. And obviously, you know, tens of thousands of people take those spin classes every year. And then eventually we get them to on a bike to come show up at a at a cycle club event and we get them into those, you know, those training rides across the country. And then the the end game is hopefully we can get them to move from there out to take on something like Dirty Kanza or Schwamigan or Lutzen. Interesting. So my the way my brain, when you're talking about that side of thing, if, if I was a bicycle retailer, I would probably wonder how I could get involved with the club rides. <laughs> do, you, do you work with any bicycle retailers locally as far as support for those particular members of, of the club? 
We do. Yeah, most of those or many of the clubs around the country, the cycle clubs around the country have a relationship uh, with a local bike dealer. So uh, we, you know, we have had national bike sponsors for for, for cycle club in the past, but it's never really, I, I think it's, it's never been quite as valuable as when we've, you know, had those good local relationships because- right. Again, it, it really boils down to that local, what becomes a very social community around riding bikes. And that the, the hub for that is kind of, you know, shared between our club and that local retailer in that market. So in, in where we're most successful with, with uh, Cycle Club, I think is where we see really, really strong relationships with those local bicycle dealers. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And any last words that you'd like to uh, say before we end this podcast? Oh, you know, I just, I would just say thank you. Thanks for, for giving me the opportunity to come on. And, you know, I hope I shed a little bit of light that maybe gives some insight for some of your dealers around the country. I'd encourage them all to get involved with events if they're not already and building the, the relationships and building those communities of people riding bikes. And, and I'm sure many of your dealers that are part of your association and that listen to your podcast are certainly, I'm guessing they're quite familiar with the success that can come from being associated with events and really engaging with those audiences locally. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kimo. Thanks, Scott. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com.